We direct your attention to the Word of God this morning. You may stand as we read. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. For no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Since the middle point of chapter two, Peter has been exhorting us along one theme, that is the theme of subordination. He's been telling us to be subordinate or be subject to constituted, stratified authorities over us. And it's been a bitter pill to swallow as we've walked through this for a few weeks because it's difficult to really appreciate what Peter's saying because it seems kind of out of accord with our spirit of independence and rebellion and our, our spirit of wanting to not have anybody tell us what to do. He's called upon us to be subject as citizens to those in power, the emperor, the king, the governors. Even though those authorities might be tyrannical, he's told us to be subject to the authorities over us in the workplace, slaves to be subjected to your masters with obedience. Even though those owners and masters might be oppressive. He has called upon wives to be subordinate and in subjection to their own husbands. Now, not men to women, but a relationship, wives to husbands. We strained for a week and a half to point that out. But even that's difficult because often the husband is not all that he should be. 
In fact, he may be an unbeliever and have no sense of spiritual life and certainly not appreciate the wife's obedience to her Lord and Master. And yet, Peter said, be subordinate. And in the midst of all this, he's told us to do what was right. He's told us to live in such a way that our conduct in these positions of subordination, in this subjected state, our obedience will be a testimony to the glory of God. And he's further instructed us in this that we can have hope in the middle of all of this. Now I would think a gospel would be like this. I'm going to overthrow your oppressors. I'm going to get rid of the tyranny. I'm going to make your husbands into perfect men so that they will deal with you in a wonderful and a perfect way. That would be a gospel message. And I'm going to suggest to you in a minute that just might be the gospel message. But while we're where we are, as Paul calls it, the state in which we're in, (laughs) that is where we are to be in our behavior. And he speaks of a hope. What is that hope? And he tells us something about that hope. He says, He says that we must always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason of the hope that is in us. In other words, we're to be ready. We're to have a ready tongue. On the tip of our tongue needs to be a good, valid reason why we have this hope. And it is to be the formally, the word there that's translated defense means it's an apology. It's a forensic term. It means to put up a defense in a court of law. But it commonly is used all throughout Greek literature to also be a reply. Not just an appropriate reply, a truthful reply, a meaningful reply to the question, but that it might be given in a right spirit that it might be done with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. In other words, when someone looks at us and reviles us for our good behavior in the condition in which we find ourselves, we need to be able to explain to them why we do it. Why do you put up with that? Why do you tolerate that? Why don't you rebel? Why don't you fight back? Why don't you resist? And the reason we don't is because we have a hope. We have a hope of something else, something other, something better. And the hope that is given to us is found there in verse 18, and I want to dwell on it for just a moment. The hope is Christ. We have committed all that we have in this life to Him with an expectation that He will make it right, that there will be a reward, that there will be a, and here's the good word that's used often, a vindication. A 
a seeing it all from a different perspective and making it all worth it and understanding it better by and by. And that's what we have in Christ. We have that hope. We have that expectation that this whole notion of being subjected to authority over us is going to turn out right. Six times in this epistle, Peter makes reference to the sufferings of Christ. Because of course he's dealing with our suffering, the suffering of the believer in this strange world as we are pilgrims and sojourners here. He calls Christ our example. He says Christ suffered for us. He makes reference from the first chapter all the way to the last chapter to the sufferings of Christ. And here is another one of those references. He said, Christ also suffered once for sins. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament called for repeated sacrifices, even on a daily basis. Sacrifices in the morning, sacrifices in the evening, sacrifices during the week, sacrifices uh, on holy days and, and all the rituals that were there, all pointing to Christ and some aspect of the atonement of Christ. That's why when Paul says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, what scriptures? Leviticus, Exodus, and the prophecies of Isaiah and all the others that tell us about the nature of the suffering. And, and the most important thing that's often pointed out in those scriptures is that there is a defilement, there's a pollution, there is a corruption there is a nastiness upon our souls and it must be purged, it must be cleansed. And it is done so with the offering of blood. It requires a life for the life of the flesh is in the blood and there's a requirement by God. And all along from the beginning, all the way to the end of time, there's only been one blood sacrifice that atones and that's Christ. All the others were just pictures, portraits, prophecies, predictions concerning that one sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, says the writer to the Hebrews. What? You tell us that now after millions of little innocent animals have gone to the slaughter? Yes. These were all sacrifices painting and pointing to a picture of the true sacrifice, the one that takes away the sins of the world, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so that is the sufferings of Christ. It was a death. It was a ignominious ugly, unjust death. It was a death of suffering and torture. It was a death of shame. It was a death of humiliation. It's the whole point of the humiliation of Christ is to bring him to that point of suffering and death. Why he left heaven's glory. Why he laid aside the free exercise of his divine prerogatives 
as God, the eternal son. Why he was able to then humble himself and come and take on human flesh. Why he was able to not just be human, but to be a human living in the meanest and the most modest of circumstance. He did not come to the throne room of a king. He came to the home of an animals, a manger, and lived a life of privation, a life of suffering, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He understood, he lived, he found the places and the depths and the pockets of human misery, and he tasted it. The grief, the sorrow, the weariness, all of it, God coming and dwelling among us in this way. And he did it not because people were good and deserving, but he came because we were undeserving and helpless. He came and suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. He was the perfect sacrifice and he died for the most imperfect person. The sinner that needs salvation most. Someone who will look at themselves, smite themselves upon the breast and say, woe is me for I am undone. The person who will say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The person who will say, in spite of all of the commandment keeping and all the self-righteousness and all of the good deeds and everything that you've enjoyed in this life from a human standpoint, you will finally conclude as Paul did, I am the chief of the sinners. When you line up the sinners in order of their unworthiness, I'll be at the head of that line. The righteous, the righteous Christ for the unrighteous. He did it for a reason, that he might bring us to God. That's what Christ's mediatorial work is. He's a mediator, he's in the middle. He's between God and man. He brings God to man in his incarnation and in his earthly life. But then by his death and his work, his passive obedience to the will of God, laying down his life, freely giving it up, he brings mankind, men, women, boys and girls to himself and to God. He stands between, he's the one that he might bring us to God. And then it, it, it gives the, the, uh, the uh, rubrics of the gospel, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then if you go down to the very last verse there, he's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. And that's the story of Christ's descent and his ascent his humiliation and his exaltation. He comes from heaven's glory all the way to a manger 
lives a life, dies a death, is buried, goes into the tomb under the power of death, under the curse of death, in the state of death, in the darkness and the horrors and the putrefying places that the dead soul goes. People always want to know when I, we do the creed, what does it mean, Ron, that Christ descended into hell? And the first thing I said is, I don't know. But whatever death is, whatever hell is, whatever you want to call that, that's what Christ endured. And we get to this passage. What does it mean that he went and preached to the spirits in prison? I don't know. But it means that the gospel is to be preached to everybody, if nothing else. But he went into that place that is the dread of every one of us. It's almost unimaginable. We don't think of it often. When we do, we don't think of it correctly. And when we do think of it correctly, we, we don't seem to take it seriously. It's just something about us that there's a numbness to it. Yesterday, I had my grandsons with me and we took a little trip down to our place. But on the way, we went by the National Cemetery and went by my mother's grave where she was buried last Thanksgiving. And I was surprised at the, the lack of feeling, as grief-stricken as I'd been over my mother's death at age 90. That's how old Chuck Berry was when he died. He made it to 90. <laughs> it was just some, a disconnect. There was this tombstone and these thousands of tombstones there in the National Cemetery with all those who served in the military. My dad was, was Navy, Iwo Jima, two bronze stars. He's gonna be buried there one day. <laughs> but mom went first. And as I thought, as we walked away and got in the car to take on off on the rest of our trip, I thought, why do I not feel the way I felt a month ago or two months ago when I visited that little space? It's just something about us that just sort of moves us on. We just move on. We're almost like sheep, just kind of headed for the slaughter and are oblivious to it. We don't reckon with our own death and our own mortality, knowing that it comes upon, it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. Christ came and met that appointment, that appointment with death. He faced it, he endured it, being put to death in the flesh. Kings, governors condemned him. Herod, Pilate condemned him. He was subject to their sentence and to their punishment. He was executed under the order of the Roman government. I don't know how you suffer more than that. I don't know how you're more in subjection than that. He opened not his mouth, he spoke not a word. Even Pilate got impatient with Christ because Christ wouldn't offer any defense. Put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, resurrected to new life, brought alive by the spirit of God, given a whole 
new existence. The same body that went into the tomb and had died in the flesh was raised in the flesh with new life by the Spirit of God. And then the scripture says that he's gone into heaven. Here we have his humiliation, his descent all the way into the tomb. And there he was three days, three nights in the tomb. Friday night, Saturday, Sunday morning, all day Saturday, the Sabbath, resting in the tomb, waiting the resurrection. The shout of the archangel, the voice of God. Just like Jesus had said a few weeks before his death, Lazarus, come forth. God the Spirit said to that dead but not decaying body of Christ, come forth. And now begins his exaltation, raised to new life, and then ascended into heaven. The ascension, going back, beginning to resume his life that he had had before his death, to assume those things that he had laid aside. And it says in the text, he's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. That's the reason for the hope is that Christ is going to bring everything into subjection to himself. He's teaching us what it means to be in subjection to the supreme authority because he is that supreme authority. And on one day, every king, every governor, every boss, every slave owner, every husband will bow their knee and say that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Everybody will be subjected to him. And what will he do? The Bible teaches us quite a bit about judgment. First it says that all judgment's been committed to the Son. It is Jesus Christ that died for you is the same person that's going to judge you. Don't you think he knows the terms of the case? And those of us that are in subjection to him now, who've bowed our knees before him now, will find that he is our vindication. He's our resurrection. He's our hope. 